with me. Matthew chapter 7. We've got two more weeks and we will wrap up an in-depth study of the Sermon on the Mount. So take out your outline, open your Bibles, and we will launch into Matthew chapter 7. Okay? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much. Thanks for uh, the truth of your word. Thanks for the chance he gives us to listen to you. Uh, God, this is the main way we hear your voice. This is the way that you speak into our lives. This is the way you guide and direct us. So we thank you. We take it seriously. And especially, Father, uh, thanks for the Lord Jesus. And thanks for the fact that he loved us and he loved his audience when he delivered this Sermon on the Mount 2,000 years ago. Thank you for, that it was, for the difference it made then. Thank you for the difference it can make now. Father, uh, I just got to confess, uh, this is a tough passage, tough passage to teach and to listen to and to learn from in light of our culture. So I pray, I want you to engage with me right now and say, Heavenly Father, give me an open mind. Teach me and change me in your name. Amen. I want you to imagine with me now that you're coming up on the end of the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus because I've got to put this passage in its context. For you to understand the importance of it, you've got to remember Jesus has been laying down a radically different approach. In fact, we started this series with kind of the tagline, Jesus versus religion, because Jesus was confronting the religious thinking of his day. Jesus wasn't necessarily throwing religion out, but he was throwing out false religion. He was, he was throwing out a lot of the false ideas of the culture that the people grew up in. And, and it began with Jesus redefining what the good life is, what the, he called the blesseds are, blessed are. Remember that? And we went through that for eight or nine weeks and unpacked the fact that Jesus redefined what it means to be one of his followers and to experience the blessing of God. Then Jesus got even more challenging. He moved into a section of this thing characterized by the phrase, see if you can complete it, you've heard it said, but, very weak, okay, try it again, you've heard it said, but, I knew you were here, yeah, but I say to you, in other words, Jesus was confronting the thinking of their own, of their own, uh, of their own experience, their own culture, their own mind, and Jesus began to redefine what it really meant to be a follower of Christ, and Jesus began to redefine sin, and that got kind of personal. Now, Jesus, for example, began to say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Everybody says, hey, that's a great idea. But I say to you, let's talk about lust. You've heard it said, don't murder people. Hey, that's a great idea. But Jesus said, let's talk about anger. So Jesus began to look at the hearts of people and he began to redefine them and point out to them that sin is not just an external thing that you do, but it's an issue of the heart. And all of a sudden, everybody that kind of felt like, Woo, I'm doing all right. I'm pretty good compared to my neighbor. I'm a, I'm, I'm a great A follower of God, all of a sudden began to realize that all of us have more sin than we want to admit. That's true of me. You teach through that passage, Jesus redefines it. And suddenly people begin to to have a little less confidence that they're okay when they suddenly die and stand before God. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's kicking out from under us this idea so popular in his day that if you make yourself good enough, then you're okay. If you're better than your neighbors and you're better than the average American, you go to heaven. Jesus was eliminating that as an option because everyone listening to this sermon is beginning to feel kind of uneasy. Kind of came to a highlight at the end of chapter 5 when Jesus said this. He says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, your religious leaders. And then he got even tougher in verse 48 and he said, your righteousness must, 
Well, you got to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, who qualifies? And every hand goes down. At this point, they're feeling kind of hopeless. At this point, Jesus begins to offer an alternative, and that is to live life from the inside out. And I'm kind of reviewing the summer for those of you that were on vacation too long. Okay, here we go. And the essence of that section is, hey, don't be a hypocrite, but be real. And Jesus begins to define what, what the authentic relationship with God really looks like. And, and he talks about like, hey, learn to don't be a hypocrite, but to pray with authenticity, give with authenticity, not to impress others from a pure heart, live for eternal treasure, not earthly stuff, serve the right master, not money, trust the right provider, not your own abilities, but the God who provides for you like he does the birds of the sky. Then he says, look, Judge yourself before you look into others' eyes. He says, ask, seek, and knock, believing. Last week we learned this, that the Father is the giver of good gifts when he answers and surprises you. And at this point, can you imagine now, this is what I want you to get. Imagine how you're feeling if you're listening to this. Because this is one solid sermon that we've been breaking apart. I think at this point, the lead idea is this. I need help. So where do I go? If this is the truth, and I'm feeling like I don't live up to this, where do I go for answers? And this is where today and next week, Jesus today gives kind of the bad news. He's going to give us a warning that a lot of people are going to be disappointed if they put their faith in the wrong place. Next week, he's going to tell you where to put your faith. Okay? So you've got to be here next week for the good news. But I think it's even good news to learn bad news. Is that true? No, you, you don't know how to answer that, do you? Okay. Here's why it's good news to learn bad news. You don't want to die someday and then learn the bad news. Does that make sense? So if there's bad news to learn, when do you want to learn it? Tomorrow? Today, I vote for today, okay? Here we go. You're going to learn today whether you want it or not. Here we go. Open your Bibles. Listen, because this is what Jesus says, and I think he shocks his audience. And the fact of the matter is this statement, if you really listen to it, would shock most Americans and even many Christians. I'll give you the opening verse, open to it, but here it is on the screen. Matthew 7, 13. Jesus says this, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, if Jesus didn't have my attention, he's got it now. For if he is right, and I believe he is, you better choose the right gate, not the wrong one. And if he is right, the radical thing is that Jesus departs from the thinking of our American culture and our Western culture dramatically. And that's why I just want you to kind of prepare your heart and your spirit Because I'm going to challenge your thinking. Jesus, actually not me, I can't do that. Jesus is going to challenge your thinking 
in a way today that you've perhaps never been challenged for a lot of weeks. Maybe forever. Jesus is going to shake up the thinking of today's culture. Today's culture thinks what? Let me give you a couple quotes from some of the gurus of the culture because I think they represent what your friends, your neighbors, and maybe some of you in the room have grown up being told. Let me give you a quote from one of the culture shapers. George Lucas, creator of Star Wars, said this. He said, I remember when I was 10 years old, I asked my mother, if there's only one God, why, why are there so many religions? And I've been pondering that question ever since. So you think a guy like George Lucas doesn't think about God? Because I've been pondering that question ever since. And the conclusion I've come to is that all religions are true. The force be with you. Yet Jesus is about to say something very different. You say, well, that's the outside culture. What about inside the thinking of the church? Here's a quote from a study of youth in America, students. Here's a 16-year-old Christian girl who grew up in a very solid church, very much like Seacoast. She said this when asked about truth. What is truth? Is it always the same? I don't think so. Truth changes constantly with time. It always varies from person to person and from different circumstances. What is true today will not absolutely be true tomorrow. What was truth yesterday is not absolute truth today. Therefore, there is no absolute truth. This girl grew up in the church. But that's what the conclusion is she's come to. You see, our culture tends to say all religions are true. All truth is changing. Or they say all religions are false and and there is no truth at all. Or they say if truth exists, I don't think we have the ability to really grasp it and understand it. It's a it's a mystery. You know, but 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 that's the modern thinking of our culture. So we're going to kind of bring Jesus into the picture now. We're going to look at three or four questions. Here they are. I've outlined them for you to help you follow me because I'm going to move quick. If you want to follow, I suggest you get the outline out. Here we go. What did Jesus really say? What did he really say? Let's make sure we get it right. Secondly, did he really mean what he said? How do we know that this isn't just one absurd uh, statement, but does it line up with the rest of what he says elsewhere? And, and, And what did the people that knew him best think he said and think he meant? So did Jesus say it? Did Jesus really mean it? And then and then here's the question. If Jesus said it and he really meant it, and I think you can probably guess where I'm coming from, that he did and he does, then how would you explain to one of your friends, neighbors, why in the world it could be true when we live in a culture today that, that, that so values just respecting and, and like George Lucas just saying, you know, all religions are true, God bless you, whatever you believe. How could Jesus say such a exclusive, narrow-minded, some would say bigoted thing. In fact, one philosopher that studied and read what Jesus said about this issue we're studying, he said this. He said, I don't believe in Jesus because I don't think Jesus was even nice. And he said it because of this teaching of Jesus. So, what is the teaching? How do we believe it, understand it, and explain it to others? Here we go. Let's talk first. What did Jesus really say? The context I've already given you. The context was this. The context is this is a unified sermon. The whole first part of the sermon is explaining to people why they can't go to heaven based on their good works. 
Jesus has already unpacked that. We spent the spring and the summer teaching that. Now Jesus is closing the deal. He's coming to a conclusion. And as he comes toward the end of the sermon, he's going to give them a warning. Then he's going to give them some great news next week. Today we look at the warning. And here it is. I'll diagram it. It's very simple. Verse 13. Listen to it again. There are two gates. There are really only two approaches to God is what he's saying. There's two gates. And here's what he says about the two gates. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. Talking about eternal life. And there are few who find it. It's very simple to diagram. Two gates. Wide and narrow. The one that he says the majority will choose, they get surprised on the other side of the gate. Because, by the way, no one chooses a gate to destruction. Do you understand that? Nobody consciously would say, okay, got two gates labeled life, destruction. I choose destruction. Nobody does that. Which means that the audience would assume Jesus is saying that humanity chooses the gate that they think leads to life. Which tells me even a more scary truth, and that is that both gates will promise something. One gate delivers, and the other one doesn't. One delivers destruction, and, 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 and the majority of humanity, according to Jesus, will be surprised by it. The other is narrow, but it delivers life, and the few find it. And Jesus' word is, look, man, choose the narrow gate. Make sense? That's what you want to do. Why is it that this exists? And I think now we understand why verse 15 follows follows verse 14, all right? Why does this problem exist? It's because of verse 15. Look at verse 15. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now let's, let's pick up in this warning about the false prophets. Let me build it for you. Number one is they look good. They look good. They look like sheep, okay, which is a symbol of the followers of God. And they look like sheep, but they are like wolves that have dressed up in sheep's clothing. So externally, they will look like the real thing. They will look like uh, Christianity often. They will look like something that delivers life. But in reality, they're like a wolf that takes life. It doesn't deliver it. Secondly, they will sound good. Look at this. He says, but you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles are. They will come back to that in a minute. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. In other words, look to the roots. Look at their roots. We'll come back to that. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And then he says this, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Second thing is they will sound good. 
They will profess Christ or they will profess to offer life. They'll say, Lord, Lord. In other words, they'll say, well, we believe. So they're going to look good. They're going to say a lot of the right things and sound good. He even says they will prophesy. He says, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many miracles? In fact, bring that one up too. They even do miracles. And Jesus, if you understand this in the Greek language, when he says, did we not prophesy and do miracles in your name? The the, the intended answer is, uh, yes, you did. But Jesus still says, depart from me because I never knew you. You weren't the real deal. That's why Jesus labels these false prophets. You know, the reality is, is that the other things you look for in a false prophet or a false religion or a, or a cult that claims to offer life, but it offers destruction. Here's the characteristics. They will look like the real thing. They won't look super bizarre. They will look like the real thing. They will sound good in what they have to say most of the time. And they will, and they will claim to have a word from God. They will prophesy. Now, prophecy sometimes looks to the future and predicts the future. Most prophecy, though, doesn't do that. Most of the Old Testament prophets, they did a little bit of that. But what they mainly do is they, they were the voice of God. They were the mouthpiece of God. And they spoke truth from God to the culture. So they're probably going to say, hey, God has given us a word for you. And that's why when you study other religions and you study cults, what you find is they almost always have, they, they look a lot like the real thing, they sound a lot like the real thing, but they offer a word from God. They have a separate revelation from God, okay? And it's true of virtually every every cult. They, they have some special revelation from God to offer in addition to the Bible. And they even sometimes will be characterized by miracles being performed. And you have to remember that in Scripture, not only does God do miracles, but in Scripture, uh, the enemy does miracles as well. So satanic forces, demonic forces, uh, we have we have good and you have evil, okay? Now, at least Lucas got that much right, okay? But, you know, but the, the reality is, uh, is, that, is that even someone who does a miracle does not necessarily mean that the truth that they're speaking is, is authentic and from God. So we're going to learn, by the way, there is, a, there is an answer. Can I give you just a little bit of good news? Okay, here it is. Look at the very next verse, verse 24, 724. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, meaning Jesus, and acts on them will be compared to a wise man who builds his house on a rock. So the rock you want to build on are not the false prophecies of this world, not the religions of this world, but it's Jesus and his words. That's the test. We'll come back to that next week. But history is cluttered with cults and religions that fit this description. So now, here's the deal. Jesus has given a radical thing. Jesus says the world is full of religions and religious thinking. And he says the majority of people are going to follow these false prophets. But you don't want to go there. Instead, you want to follow me and my word, but it's going to be narrow. It's going to be narrow-minded. It's not going to line up with what the majority think. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus and live a comfortable life in a culture that will agree with you, give it up. You've got to have some tough skin if you're going to, you know, follow Christ these days, especially in today's world. I love the fact that a lot of our of our of our youth are with us in this nine o'clock service because you're going to face it more than I faced it. And I faced it. 
I faced it as a philosophy major at a secular university. But I got to tell you, you're going to face it even more because the culture now lines up more with George Lucas than Jesus. And you're going to have to decide who you're going to follow. You're going to live and put your eternity and your faith in the force being with you when you die or you want Jesus Christ as your hope and your redemption. It's your choice. But it's these gates that Jesus is talking about. Now, if Jesus was so radical in this, let's go to the second question. If Jesus really said this, and he did, then did Jesus really mean this? Or are we perhaps uh, over, over, overemphasizing this one sermon? Maybe he had a bad day that day. I don't know. Okay, here we go. Did Jesus really mean this, that he was saying he was the only gate, that the path to heaven was so narrow? I asked two questions to answer that. One, did Jesus state this at other times? Let me give you three quick references. Just listen to it. Jesus first in John 3, John 3, 5. Jesus said this to Nicodemus, who, by the way, wasn't a, a rascal. He was a, he was a very godly, moral, religious guy, respected. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, look, man, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, this is John 3, 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born from above is what the Greek means. You must, be, you must have a spiritual birth. That's what that phrase born again means. Don't, get, don't think that's politics, okay? That's not a political movement. That, that, that's, that's not a brand of Christianity. That's just saying you were born physically when you came out of mommy's womb and you need a spiritual birth to go with your physical birth. First is from your mommy. The second is from God. John three sixteen. Jesus put it pretty straight. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. See, that's the other gate. But experience eternal life. But then he says in verse 18, this is where he makes it crystal clear. John three eighteen. He who believes in him is not judged, meaning in Jesus, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is written by the Apostle John who was considered the closest friend of Jesus of all the disciples. John heard it very clearly and shared it with us. Jesus again in John 14. Let me give you just one more reference real quick. John chapter 14 says this. When people think about eternity and the fear of death, Jesus says, look, do not let your heart be troubled. This is 14.1. Believe in God, but you need to do more than believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'm going to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Thomas says, Lord, where are you going? We don't, we, don't, we don't get it. We don't know the way where you are going. And, and Jesus says this famous statement, John 14, 6, For I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Couldn't be more clear. Jesus said it. Not just once, but many times. And that's why that some readers of Jesus decide, you know, I don't think Jesus was nice, you know, because Jesus 
didn't have the modern-day 21st century tolerance in his message. Jesus chose truth over tolerance. Now, by the way, being tolerant, meaning being respectful and kind and loving to other people of other faiths, was a core message of Jesus. Jesus taught you should love people toward God, not threaten and abuse them like other religions often do. Jesus is all about kindness. But Jesus chose that people need truth more than they need to just hear what they want to hear. Does that make sense? Sure it does. Did Jesus' followers hear this message clearly? Here's just three references if you want to write them down. It was clear through John. John 3.36. John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I don't like that verse in my spirit. In my humanness, I don't like that verse. I love that verse because I love Christ and I love his scriptures, but my, my human reaction is, oh, boy, that's bad news. But you see, it's good news to know bad news before you die. What you don't want to do is to choose a gate, walk through the gate, get on the other side, and then get, oh, my gosh, I guess Jesus was right, George Lucas was wrong. Why did I spend so much time watching Star Wars? That's not where you go for truth about something that Lucas is guessing at. Lucas was guessing about God. Jesus was God. Jesus came down from heaven to earth to deliver truth. Lucas peered into the heavens and wondered about truth. And I'm not trying to pick on Star Wars. I love the movies. I love George Lucas. But I just wanted you to see the difference in the culture. How about another follower of Jesus? His historian that traveled with him, who was by trade a physician, very attention-oriented toward detail. Acts 4.12, Luke writes this, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You know, Luke heard it and got it clearly. The Apostle Paul, who had a revelation from Jesus directly and later came to faith after opposing Christianity, wrote probably the clearest message in Romans 10.1. Now, you should write this reference down and come back to it this week. Romans 10.1, Paul is speaking about how much he loves his friends, the Jewish people. And he writes this, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Now stop right there. Now you're talking about a religious person, right, who has a zeal for their faith. They're not lackadaisical in their Judaism. They, are, they have a zeal for God. Well, you know, I'd like to think I have a zeal for God. Some days I have it. Some days I probably don't. But these are zealous followers of other faiths. Now, you must listen to what he says next. He says, For they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge or truth. For not knowing about God's righteousness that is provided through Christ. That's what he's been teaching in Romans. Seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. There is the issue. The issue is this, plain and clear. Now, some of you are getting offended now, and I just need to say I love you, and I love you enough to say hang in there. Can you say that with me, hang in there? Hang in there. 
What Paul is saying is this, and it's not a popular truth, is that any religion or movement that thinks that they can tell people to establish their own goodness before God, their own righteousness before God, and by doing so that they're telling those followers that this will get you into eternal life. If you just grade above the curve, a a little better than the average person, or some religions go even further and teach what's called universalism, that God is so big and so loving that one way or the other we'll all be surprised no matter what gate we choose and walk through, on the other side of the gate will be life and we'll be surprised. That is so counter to what Jesus is teaching. I would say to you today, you cannot follow, you cannot identify yourself as a follower of Jesus and believe that. Jesus says... Trying to establish your own righteousness doesn't work. Now, why is that? So, okay, that's the final question. Because I don't want to just leave you walking out the door knowing what you should believe, but ill-equipped to explain it to your friends who are going to think you're a nut. All right? I don't like being thought of as a nut. I, I like to have an answer for the hope that I have in Christ. So I'm going to give you a very quick, so I typed it out for you, if you take a few short notes... I typed out the statements. I want to give you five statements you can share with a neighbor or friend to explain why you believe such a nutty thing as if to believe that Jesus really is the only way to eternal life. Here's why it's true. Here we go. And I would say them in this order. Number one, I would say this. Is God real? Do you believe God's real? Yes or no? Okay. Now, if God is real then he, and he is, by the way, he cannot be whatever we want him to be. If God is real, he cannot be whatever we want him to be. And here's how I know that. It's true of every person. Here's the deal. If you get to know Dale, and you say, you know, Dale, you know, uh, here's what I think Dale is. You know, and, and someone makes up a description of Dale, and it's wrong. Okay, Dale has long flowing hair, true or false. Okay, but what if someone sees me and, and they envision me this way, they've dreamed of me this way maybe, and they see my hair. If they said, Dale has long flowing hair, true or false? False. Okay. Okay. Dale, in spite of what he typically wears, is wearing a pink shirt today. True or false? Okay. That's true. Okay. This is in honor of my granddaughter who loves pink. And I, I'm going to send her this picture by that because probably the last time you'll see me wear this shirt. But here we go. Okay. There, no, the reality is oh, there, there's truths and falsehoods about everyone. Okay. Dale, uh, Dale loves to teach the scriptures. True or false? See, that's true. Now, if someone said, you know, I don't think Pastor Dale really likes teaching the scriptures. I think he just does it for a living. He doesn't really like to do it. That's either true or false. And see, this, the, the fact of the matter is you don't have the ability to make up a person the way you want them to be. They are who they are, and God is who he is, whether you like it or not. So if God is real, he, he, we have to study who he is and what he tells us about himself, and that's, that's the reality. So the cold, hard truth is our culture doesn't like that. George Lucas didn't like that. He'd rather invent a God who says, I just kind of like religion. You guys have fun. Make up all the religions you want, and I'll bless all of them. You know, I'd like to tell you God's that way, but the God of the Scriptures, the God that Jesus displayed to us and taught us about is not that way. 
the cold truth is that truth exists. We live in a pluralistic culture that wants the freedom to invent God any way we want it. Now, why do we enjoy that? Our culture plays let's make a God. Because by playing let's make a God, who, who am I really making into God? Myself. Make sense? Yeah. Because if I can make my own God, guess what? If I made him, I'm above him. So, if, you know, for example, if I want to, uh, if I just decide, ah, it's kind of an old-fashioned idea, so I'm going I'm to just move in. In fact, it's, it's the cultural trend today. I'm going to just move in with my girlfriend. I'm going to try her out and let her try me out for a while before we get married because that's a more modern way to do things. And, and by the way, that is the trend, right? I mean, it's huge. Okay, uh, so, so I'm going to make, I'm, I, I believe God says that's okay because my God says it's okay. That way I feel really comfortable doing it. Whereas, if not, I've got to kind of struggle with, okay, I can still do it, but I have to do it knowing that my faith says, don't do that. By the way, there's statistics and research actually says it increases your likelihood of a divorce down the road if you, if you, if you, if you follow that path. It doesn't make marriage more stable. It actually makes it more unstable when and if you ever pull the trigger and get married. But that's just one little illustration. But, but, but I think the culture, because of moral Tension often wants to invent a God that will adjust his morality to theirs. First question is, if you think God's real, you better, you better search for who he really is, not who you want him to be. Number two, do you want God to be holy or not? Yes or no? Now think about this. Do you want God to be holy or mean? Yes or no? Holy or unholy? See, if I ask non-Christians that question, most of them will say, well, I hope that God is holy because I know I'm not, so someone's got to be. I certainly hope my God, who I look to and pray to, is, is godly. <laughs> he is perfect. He's holy. And here's the deal. If God is holy and I'm not, then i got a problem, and it's called sin and guilt. If God is holy, and, and most people want him to be, and I know I'm not, and most people will admit that, then we got a real problem. We've fallen short of what the scriptures say that is, is, the, is the character of God. That's what sin means, is to miss the mark from what God wants us to be. So i got a real problem. Number three, do I want God to be love or not? Do you want God to be love? Answer? Yes. Okay, now here's the deal. If God is holy and i got a real problem, then if God is loving, and he is, he would provide a real solution to my real problem. Does that make sense? See, it's a loving thing to warn people that all gates don't lead to life. That's not a mean thing Jesus was doing. It was a loving thing. And, and, and if we say we love people, then we have to warn them. It doesn't mean that you're judging them you're giving them truth that's not judging them that's loving on them by at least warning our culture of the truth you know and jesus was showing us that love he loves us enough to be honest with us i guarantee you the gurus and the false prophets of our culture uh, another tendency is very few of them uh, believe in destruction very few of them have a bad news message you know, and that's because they want everyone to like their message.
But real love tells the truth. And real love has to provide a real solution to the real problem of sin. And that's the good news. Now it gets better. Fourth point is this. If any good effort at any religious endeavor was good enough for God, then Jesus was a liar, the cross was a tragedy, and Christianity, which you and I are here to talk about and learn about and celebrate, is a farce. Because Jesus was totally out of whack with truth. See, just being good does not get you there. Jesus knew that, and the most loving thing he could do would be to deliver that message to us. Galatians 1.21, write the reference down. Galatians 1.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if our righteousness comes through obedience to the law, then Christ died needlessly. Because Jesus shouldn't have had to die on a cross. He should have just came and said, love one another and work at it. And if you work at it long enough, you're probably going to get in. And that's my message. And he leaves. Doesn't have to die on a cross. Doesn't have to rise from the dead. He just has to be like all the other false prophets. But he loved us enough to tell us the truth. And the fifth thing I would share with people is this. You'd say, well, but how do you know Jesus pulled it off? Well, the words... The miracles and works of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ all bear witness to the truth of his claims. That's what makes Jesus distinctive from other religious gurus. No other religious guru ever said, you know something, I'm gonna, number one, I'm going to do miracles. I'm going to teach you truth like you've never heard before. And then, to cap it all off, you will see me crucified, die, get buried publicly and then in three days, I'm coming out of the tomb, and I will, I will rise, I will live again. The resurrection is the ultimate proof that Jesus is the real deal. So if I believe in the resurrection of Christ, I cannot deny the other teachings of Jesus. That's the five simple statements I walk my friends through if they ask me, how in the world can Christians believe this? This wacky idea that Jesus is the only way. So then the final question is this, and we're going to come back to this next week. How shall we live in today's pluralistic culture? And in a phrase, in a single phrase, here is the secret. So how do you interact with, most people are going to disagree with you. How do you, how do you, how do you share this? John 1.14 says, Jesus was a man full of grace and truth. Full of grace, full of truth. And he never backed off on either one. That's what we've got to do. We've got to deliver a radical truth that our world doesn't want to hear, but if we love them, we must deliver it. But then we've got to surprise the world by laying it down with a radical amount of love and compassion for people. We need to love people more radically than they've ever been loved. Even if they tell you you're an idiot, even if they get in your face, even if they want to reject you, You've got to come back and don't fight evil with evil. Come back and out-love them. You've got to love them. And especially, we've got to love the people that think we're nuts. And then you've got to keep speaking truth. Radical truth plus radical love changes lives. Pray with me. Father God, thank you. Thank you for radical truth that Jesus has laid down today. Father, it leaves us with a radical call to love people 
a radical call to share Christ and the good news, the good news that we'll study next week, that Jesus is the rock of our salvation, of our faith, that Jesus delivers life to people through his work on the cross. But Father, I just pray as we sit here today that we would stop and ask the question first, are we committed to following this type Jesus? Are we committed to following a Jesus that perhaps walking in the door this morning, we wouldn't have agreed with this? And are we committed to being the mouthpiece of Jesus to our world? I want you to think on that first, and then I'll come back up in a minute and finish the message. us, even as we listen to the words of this song, make this a time in which we sit and we reflect on our own lives and and ask ourselves the question, do we have the faith and the courage to honestly follow Jesus in today's world? In Christ's name, amen. Just listen to the first verse of this song, you'll recognize it. But listen to it and pray your way through it. Ask yourself some tough questions. I'll come back up in a minute. And then join in if you want to join in.